This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by 5 Days to Your Best Year Ever, an online course to help you set powerful goals and actually achieve them. Find out more at bestyearever.me. Ideal conversation should be a matter of equal give and take, but too often it is all take. Emily Post wrote that in her famous book, Etiquette, way back in 1922, but it could have been written today. Politics. In-laws. Money. Religion. Sex. Sports. No matter what you talk about, somebody's bound to have a strong opinion, and they always voice it. And when they think they're right, well, there's just no changing their mind. Not that it stops us from trying. It's almost impossible to hear somebody sound off about terrorism, or the stock market, or the latest Twitter hashtag when you know they're dead wrong. I don't know if it's social media, or the trolls, or the bots, or just something in the air, but we have completely lost the ability to talk to each other. Between the internet memes and anonymous comments, it seems like we're all screaming to the world about how mad we are. I guess that's nothing new. The fact that Emily Post had to tell people how to be polite over a hundred years ago should tell us something. And 200 years before that, George Washington wrote his Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior. At least a third of them were about how to speak to people. They included no-brainers like, Think before you speak. Don't insult people, even as a joke. Don't repost a news story on Facebook if you're not 100% sure it's true. Okay, that may be paraphrased a little, but that's really what Washington meant by Rule 79. Don't repeat information you haven't taken the time to verify. All that makes it really hard to have a meaningful discussion about the things that really matter. And that's really too bad because that's exactly what we should talk about. And that's exactly how we should do it. With respect, courtesy, and civility. Is that even possible anymore? Well, Emily Post thought so. There is a simple rule by which one can at least refrain from being a pest or a bore, and the rule is merely to stop and think. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. And in this episode, we're talking about a skill every leader has to learn, and it's becoming more important all the time. How to have a civil conversation about a difficult subject. As leaders, we all want to influence people, but defensiveness, closed minds, and angry rhetoric make it almost impossible to be persuasive on important subjects. Over the years, we've had at least our share of tense conversations. Yes, and, we have. <laughs> and we've got four simple guidelines that will help you hold a civil conversation on even the most sensitive topic. You can avoid alienating the very people you hope to influence, and you'll gain the trust that makes them willing to follow your lead. I can hardly think of a more timely subject than this one. I mean, we seem to be have this national shouting match, at least here in the U.S., which bleeds over into work and family. I mean, all the stuff that's going on in Facebook during the last, you know, major election and our midterm elections, and we can't even have civil discourse at home. I mean, we're about to celebrate a major holiday in this country, and we're going to have to have some ground rules. Am I right? 
You're right. Certain things we can't talk about because of this very issue. I think the real problem is, is that we're so disconnected from each other. This is actually um, the theme of a book that I read recently, which is excellent by Ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass, called Them, Yes. Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And, you know, as a disclaimer, he is a conservative senator, but he is very uh, much about bringing people together and understanding why there's so much division in our culture and how we can heal that. But he talks about how, in a way, we're more connected than we've ever been, but we're also lonelier than we've ever been. Thank you, social media. This is kind of counterintuitive because we feel like we're more connected than we've ever been through social media. You know, there's more people that we can stay uh, in touch with than ever before, but we're actually more lonely at the same time because social media brings us together, but also harms our well-being. In fact, a study by the University of Pennsylvania said that using less social media actually makes you feel less lonely. So conversely, the more you use social media, the lonelier you feel. But we're actually more distanced from each other physically, too. Like we've lost institutions like church and, you know, the Rotary Club and things like that that used to help people feel connected. Um, We're isolated in our modern suburban life geographically from one another. Our mobility for our careers has really um, increased. So we're moving around and losing connections with people um, in neighborhoods and things like that. Um, And we're less connected at a local level, fewer people than ever before, according to Ben Sass, about what's going on in their local community. You know, we're very focused on global events, but not focused on local ones. And that's usually where we have things in common with people. Well, here's the most dangerous part of it, I think, is that we're often connected over our anger. Yes, so what we're, we're against, not yeah, what we're for. Exactly. Grouped by what we're against. Yep. And it's fueled by people. If you study any of the phenomenon of mm-hmm. uh, Facebook yes. and some of the other social media networks, it's fueled by people who profit from it. Yes. That's so, the scary part. So people who uh, are there to sort of poke the bear, mm-hmm. you know, and get the clicks by writing some provocative headline or something that makes you angry that gets you to click on it, but we're being manipulated. And you and I both read a few books this summer that had to do with social media and actually what's happening with the algorithms. Yeah. And it's not that somebody just by design decides that they're going to polarize us. Mm-hmm. It's just the algorithms make it easy to separate us into these buckets that makes it easier to market to us. So the solution here is more face-to-face connection. It's exactly what we need um, in order to get to know each other better, to find out what we have in common, and to ultimately have more civil conversations. But this is a delicate issue for business leaders because we want to foster community and and conversations, but we also want to exercise our influence. But this can be tough to navigate at work, and there's going to be more on that later as we get into this conversation. Yeah, one of the things I want to say about that face-to-face it's easy to vilify other people yes. when you don't spend time with them. Yes. But if you can abstract them and talk about them as a class, very easy to dismiss them. Yeah. I think Brene Brown says people are hard to hate up close. And that's a really good point here. It's a good point. So we've got four guidelines for holding civil conversations on a tough subject. So what's number one? Okay. Guideline number one, begin where you agree. Yeah. This is really important, and I learned this up close and personal when I attended a conference about 15 years ago, and I was one of the attendees in this conference. There were probably about 50 of us. We were from about 30 different countries and four major religions. Hmm. So the conference organizer made that clear to us on the front end. And the first exercise we did 
was to focus on what we had in common. Hmm. Now, your mind would naturally go in a context like that to where we're different. You know, you're a Hindu and I'm a Christian and I'm, you know, from this country and you're from that country and we're different races and all these different genders and everything else. But so they paired us up with somebody that wasn't from our home country. And so then we had to list as many ways as we were the same. And so what we discovered, I think on my list with the person I was working with, we had like 84 different things where we were the same. Like we want a better future for our kids. We love our spouse. We know we need to get better at that. You know, we want work where we're, you know, making enough money to provide for our families and provide for their education. So we went through all these things and you realize that if you look at like kind of a Venn diagram, that the overlap between what we want is so similar. We had so much common. Then we went from that to discussing where we were different, but now we had a common foundation. We had a basis. So we realized that in the context of wanting mostly the same stuff, that we could tolerate our differences. That was a huge lesson for me to see. That's one of the points that Ben Sass makes in his book is that we've forgotten how to be Americans, whereas Americans, we have so many things that we want in common, regardless of our political affiliation within that context, that we should and, and really do, we've just forgotten, have way more in common about what we want than what separates us. And we just focus on all the things that are, are in conflict with one another instead of what we share. Well, and just to kind of globalize that, you know, unfortunately, as Americans, we export have exported our polarization too. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, Germans are challenged with this and people in uh, Great Britain and South America, and you can go anywhere you want, but people are challenged with this kind of polarization. So I think it applies to everybody. So we've got to focus on looking for the overlapping interests and the areas of agreement. And I think that one of the things that we can do as leaders is to really notice that. So even with people uh, with whom we might violently disagree and think we have nothing in common to intentionally look for the common ground, to acknowledge it, to call it out, and to see that as the basis for a, for a civil conversation. It's the foundation. It's kind of like, what if you sat around your Christmas table or your Thanksgiving table, and that was the, the point of, that, of your role at the table, was to notice the things that you had in common or that other people had in common, even if there's a, a heated debate. You know, like what I see you saying is you really care about this, and you also really care about this. It mm. kind of looks different, but you have these things in common. That could be an interesting exercise. That could be. Well, let's try it. So not every issue or problem has an either-or solution. This kind of binary thinking, frankly, is not very helpful. It leads to polarization. You know, often the solution is found in a third way that neither party is considering. And, And one of the things that I've also learned is that sometimes instead of, you know, polarizing and talking about the theory of it, you know, to propose an experiment, you know, maybe that'll work, maybe it won't. Why don't we try it? You know, instead of just having to make this ideological argument based on theory, how about let's just try that? Let's just see if it works. Mm -hmm. I have found that the third way is almost always the way that it's usually the most sophisticated uh, kind of thinking that you can do. And that anytime we find ourselves in binary thinking, that we're kind of in a polarized place that's ultimately not going to be very productive. Um, So that's kind of a good way to judge your own uh, posture in a conversation. That's good. Uh, Another key here is to be willing to hold ideas in tension, right? So not all ideas resolve neatly. And they don't have to resolve. You can kind of hold them in tension, like individual rights versus corporate responsibility. I mean, again, we can fall into binary thinking, but I would prefer to just hold that in tension. Or personal morality versus public policy. Or asset protection versus venture spending. 
You know, it's not either or. Hold these in tension, and the tension's good. Yeah, because we want to look for those overlapping areas of interest where we agree and we probably have more in common than what separates us. And we both want the good of the company, the country, the community, our family. And identifying the common ground really builds trust. And I think that is a key idea here. When there isn't trust, you don't have the equity in a relationship to have a hard conversation. So you've got to establish trust before you try to venture into the land of uh, hard conversations, which are vulnerable conversations. I agree. And one of the things also, just as a warning, we need to be careful about how we're being manipulated by the news media. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, for the sake of clicks, and I am not opposed to journalism, and I consume the news, and I love reading good journalism, but we've got to remember that we're being manipulated. You know, the the Facebook algorithms, all the rest create this kind of polarization that make things seem more black and white than they really are, that makes people seem like they hate each other more than they are. And so that we we typically in the news media go to the extremes. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of the fact that it's ubiquitous and we report on it everywhere, makes it seem like it's everywhere. But you go into any major, like I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, and I was with people that I probably had very little in common with socioeconomically or any other way, you know, like person I was riding with in a cab. And yet we found amazing common ground. You know, we're just humans. You know, we're trying to get along the best we can. And finding that common ground becomes the basis for a civil discussion. We don't have to beat each other's throats like you would tend to believe if all you did is consume the media. Well, one of the things that I realized that was happening to me recently, so I have the New York Times app on my phone, and that's, you know, kind of my default. You may disagree with me on this point. That's okay. But, you know, I like to read the New York Times. Well, what was happening is the articles that I'm clicking on are now curating the feed that I get every day. So if I'm interested in technology one week and I click on two or three articles on technology, or if I'm, you know, right now I've clicked on the California wildfires because my in-laws live in Northern California, all I see is that. And so my perspective on what's happening in the world is totally being dictated by the algorithm that takes my preferences into account. And so then I begin to see the world only through the lens of my own interests and perceptions, which become narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. Well, here's the worst part of that. It's actually worse than that. You know, if Jaron Lanier is right in the book that we read this summer about, you know, get off all social media immediately, I can't remember the exact title. But he said it's worse than that. Because if, for example, if the algorithm figures out that you're a conservative Republican, Mm -hmm. then it'll periodically throw the most outrageous left-wing headline into your newsfeed just to tick you off and get you to click on it because it's all about the clicks. Same thing happens on the other side. You know, if you're a more liberal-minded Democrat, occasionally they'll throw some outrageous, most, you know, right-wing conspiracy thing into your feed so that it'll take you off and you'll click on it. And it's a way that we're they're dividing us into buckets and polarizing us. So the first guideline for having a civil conversation on a tough subject is to begin where you agree. Can't overstate the importance of that as a foundational element. Where do we go from there? Guideline number two is to keep an open mind. So everybody now (laughs) seems to believe that they're absolutely right on 100% of everything. Have you noticed that? It's crazy. It's like on things that don't even matter. It's like we just have to have an opinion on everything, whether it's important or not. We're absolutely certain that we're right. We often say that um, politics has become tribal, You know that we either have risk takers versus careful managers or marketing versus production. This happens inside of companies or red states versus blue states. And when we always side with our tribe, we can't grow or change. And a closed mind, of course, leads to gridlock. 
So here's a revolutionary question to ask. Where am I wrong? Or where am I blind? Is it possible that I don't know everything? You know, this may be a function of age, but the older I get, the more I hold my beliefs and opinions more loosely. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just like the exercise of challenging myself and challenging the people around me on ideas. So, you know, if I'm sitting with a bunch of conservatives, then I like to just challenge their conservatism. Mm -hmm. If I'm sitting with some liberals, I want to challenge that. I just think it's good for all of us to kind of mix it up. And again, practice keeping an open mind. Right. Because, you know, the other question is, can I learn from others who have a different view than me? Very often issues that are really important, you know, if they're not on our ticket or whatever, then we just kind of lose visibility on those things. And they actually do really matter. Yeah. You know, maybe we would see them from a different perspective, but they are important. And other people with a different viewpoint give us access to things that we would otherwise miss. So do you intentionally try to mix with people that hold different opinions than you? Yeah, I do. And I think it's it's so interesting to see where they're coming from because more times than I can count, I've been in a situation where it's like, oh, I never would have thought of it that way. Actually, <laughs> Joel does this a lot with me, my husband Joel. He has a, you know, a unique political perspective, <laughs> to say the to least. Say the least. <laughs> to say the least. Um and it's not always how I would by default think of things. And he challenges me all the time. And usually I'm like, huh, I'm not sure I agree with you, but I never would have thought of that before. And that's important to consider. And I think that's what we want to do with each other. The good thing about him too, is he has an open mind. He does have an open so mind. So I pushed back on him. I mean, his bark's worse than his bite. You know, he, he thinks, <laughs> he'll say something like, you know, it's God's truth. But when I push back on him, you know, he'll rethink it. He's, he's open. So a neat concept here is one that I learned from a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. It's actually going to be in our leader box next month in December. And it's uh, something that she calls quiet listening. So loud listening would be to make a strong statement and then defend it, you know, sort of like rolling a grenade into the room. It's useful if you're probing an idea for flaws and it can be valuable in decision making uh, as you know, if you're in a meeting about that. But outside of a conference room, room, it can lead to arguments, especially if you're the boss. You know, mm -hmm. if you just throw down some big idea and walk away, uh, it can be much more like a grenade. So she talks about this idea of quiet listening, which is about seeking to understand, not defend. This so is hard. It's really hard. It requires a lot of self-discipline as a leader, but to make eye contact, to listen for the argument and facts, and secondly, to the heart and intentions, not to interrupt. This is really, really, really hard for some of us. And then to not spend time forming counter arguments in your head, to actually listen completely. Man, I think this is Oof. the hardest of all because so this is why we keep talking past one another. And you see this in debates. You see this on interviews on TV. You see this on... Uh, college campuses, mm -hmm. but people aren't listening, like Dr. Covey said, seeking first to understand, then to be understood, but they're only concerned about getting their point of view across. And I've caught myself doing this, where I'm not really hearing what you're saying. I'm just thinking about how I'm going to frame up my next argument to obliterate the one you're making, or the one I think you're making. I might be guilty of that too from time to time. <laughs> There's this other concept too that I've, that I've learned. I actually learned this from your sister, Mary. Uh, hold the space. And what that means is don't be afraid of the silence and don't feel the need to be defensive, but be willing to sit with an opposing opinion and just consider it. Just think about it. Process it. Because if we react, 
what we do is we don't really get the benefit of it. We don't really hear it. We don't let it sink in. So to hold the space means just to listen intently, and it creates trust so that the other person feels like they're heard. So somebody that's really good at this, by the way, is your Uncle Lauren. So we're on total opposite planets when it comes to politics. And so when he comes for a visit every year, like he does, you know, one of the things he'll often ask me when I'll express an opinion, and he's so much better at this than I, but I'll express an opinion is he'll say, okay, help me understand what you see that I don't see. You mm, know, so that's like, a great question. Yeah. So he's like really probing. He says, I, 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 don't, I don't really understand that or I don't agree with that opinion, but help me understand what you're seeing because I do respect you and I don't think you just made that up. And I think that that's coming from somewhere. So help me see what you're not expressing. Gosh, I'm going to try that. That's really hard. Actually, it's really vulnerable because I think what it does is it places you as the listener in a place of yes. uncertainty because you're you're willing to say this idea that I'm holding so fast to may not be quite as certain as I thought. And I'm willing to accept the reality that there's another viewpoint that could be better or you know important to consider than my own. Well, it's kind of the posture of a learner, not a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm willing to learn from you, even though I disagree with you. Hey, everybody. Mike Boyer here for the content team at Michael Hyatt & Company. Just wanted to remind you that each week's Michael Hyatt magazine features a series of articles on the theme of the podcast. This week, be sure to check out Three Difficult Conversations by Andrea Williams. There's a link in the show notes along with the complete transcript of today's show. That's at lead2.win. One of the resources Michael mentions in this episode is Radical Candor by Kim Scott. That's a leader box selection for next month paired with another great title on communication. If you're not already a subscriber, this is a great opportunity to join. Check it out in the show notes. Now, let's get back to it. Guideline number one for holding a civil conversation on a tough subject is to begin where you agree. Number two is to keep an open mind. So what's next? Guideline number three, get your facts straight. And by this, I mean have solid evidence and a sound argument. You know, if something, you know, you pick up on the internet before you cite it in an argument, check it against Snopes.com or some other fact check uh, service. I, I Just this weekend, somebody posted something and um, they, they quoted something that I thought, that sounds outrageous. That can't be right. And sure enough, I looked it up on Snopes and it was totally bogus. So I just quietly posted the link in the comment. And usually that's enough. But I've caught myself doing this as well. You know, hey, I read it on the internet. It's got to be true. No, you've got to check your facts and you've got to learn to think too. So you can't be guilty. For example, one of the, the worst is confirmation bias, where every piece of evidence, even if it initially sounds contrary to the position I'm holding, I reinterpret it so that it supports my conclusion. We've got to be very uh, aware of our assumptions when we go into this. Confirmation bias is a real thing. Uh, Joel, my husband, again, is great at this. He is the master of, you know, pulling together the facts in kind of an unbiased way and then letting the facts kind of tell their story. Um, I find this much harder to do. I'm much more emotionally invested in things, uh, just kind of by my personality. But he does a really good job of, of kind of staying in that dispassionate place, which, which helps him to be very persuasive when he needs to be. Yeah, that's so. good. So just three quick tips to kind of summarize uh, this guideline. First, Always be sure of your data. So I really kind of covered that, but making sure that you verify the source, make sure that somebody actually said that, make sure that that the source is reputable. So one of the things I learned from the book Factfulness is to always check who the sponsor of the research is. 
So if, for example, you're getting advice about, you know, certain exercise programs or diets and all that, you got to be careful who sponsored that because somebody may just trying to be stir the pot and create the need. They might have a vested interest in, in you believing that. Exactly outcome. right. So, you know, you can remember the old saying, uh, which I think actually originated with Edgar Allan Poe, don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. It's even truer now than ever. I know, truly. George Washington, uh, we mentioned him earlier, but he said, be not apt to relate news if you know not the truth thereof. Sounds like a problem, doesn't it? Okay, second, never mischaracterize the opposing view. I would never want... And I've done this before, but I, I never want in an argument with somebody or in a debate with somebody to say, for them to say, you just created a straw man. That is not what I believe. You know, if I haven't taken the time to listen and really understand what they believe, and if I can't say it in a way that they can own, then I mischaracterized it. So that's why it, it, it takes time to, to get to know the opposing viewpoints so that you can state it accurately. Well, you never want to say things like you always or you never, you know, anything that would generalize or magnify things that take away the nuance of someone else's argument are really going to be problematic. And then third, never resort to personal attacks. This is the worst. You see it in politics all the time. You see the news media all the time. But it's uh, called the ad hominem argument, which in Latin means against the man. But it's when you bash your opponent by attacking them personally. You know, such you would say things like, you can't believe anything that guy says he's a liar. You know, or are you going to trust that con man? Or, you know, he never gets his facts straight. And again, you see this in political ads uh, all the time. So this is especially important for leaders, because if you don't verify the data, you may end up very embarrassed. For example, you're trying to resolve a, a conflict between two employees. And so you go on the basis of what one employee reports without going back and verifying with the other employee, or better yet, getting them both in the same room together so that they have some accountability. But if you don't verify that, I mean, I've, I've been on the cusp of taking action that would have been difficult to roll back based on getting one side of the story. The flip side of that is you might unintentionally mislead people or influence them in a certain way that is outsized, as we've often talked about, you know, as a leader, your opinion is magnified. And if it's not based on reliable facts, people will take action on your opinion and your directives. And if that's based on bad information, you're going to have a real mess on your hands. Mm -hmm. So again, verify. So guideline number one for holding a civil conversation on a tough subject is to begin where you agree. Number two is to keep an open mind. And number three is to get your facts straight. What's the fourth guideline? Guideline number four is to be willing to state your view, but with humility. So, so important. Yeah, it's okay to say what you think. You know, some of us yep. feel like we just have to withdraw from these conversations entirely. I'm kind of given to that, actually, um, because the, the conflict can just be not enjoyable. But it's okay to say what you think. Dialogue can't take place if you're not willing to give your view, and false agreement isn't helpful. So stating your opinion is important to do with confidence and kindness, and that may actually help others accept or consider your opinion. What about people with certain personality types, though? Because I think there's some people that are so conflict adverse mm -hmm. that there's certain topics they won't talk about. And and I, for one, in this another example with your husband Joel, we like to talk about politics. I know, and I've, I I've been very nervous in the back seat sometimes before with this. I'm going to be honest. I know, and it doesn't it doesn't bother me at all. I I enjoy it. To me, it's entertaining, and I always learn something from it, even though we're both expressing strong opinions. But uh, there are some people that just don't like this. And I think you also have to be respectful of those people. When it creates anxiety and other people, 
you know, it's probably not worth it. I think that's very true because some people are just put off or threatened by really high intense emotional situations and other people enjoy that. They actually feed off of the, the debate. And so this is our conversation today is about how do you have uh, a civil conversation on a tough subject, not, you know, how do you tolerate a super intense conversation? So you I think the point here is is that you can tailor these conversations to personality types and they can be more or less intense given what people have a tolerance for, um, but you should have them either way and they can be done in a civil manner, even if there's more or less intensity. Well, and that's where humility comes in. Yes. Because I don't think we have to state this as if, you know, it's an absolute truth that came down from Mount Sinai that mm-hmm. God gave it to us. But we can't always be sure we're right. Right. You know, we need to hold our opinions loosely and give the other person the dignity by admitting that they may have a point and may and certainly have a perspective, and they might even be right. So Lucy Swindoll, she taught me this years ago, in answer to critics, she said, you know what? You might be right. Man, that diffuses a lot. It diffuses a lot. (laughs) Because when you square off with that person, it only intensifies their opinion and they redouble their efforts and double down on on getting you to see their point of view, but to just say, you might be right. It's also true. It's also true. And it's it's kind of a practical application of Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's probably no more practical proverb than that one right there. It's a good one. So this whole idea of be willing to state your view, but with humility is never more important than when you're in a business context as a leader. So this is critical. We have to remember that as leaders and business owners, that there's a power differential between us and our team, our staff. Our words weigh a thousand pounds, figuratively speaking. So um, we have to give other people permission to speak. As leaders, we have to make it safe for other people to disagree with us. And we have to fight fair. And it's not fair to not acknowledge the power differential that exists because, you know, you may just be sharing your opinion offhandedly, but somebody else may not feel like they have the freedom to disagree with you because you're the boss. Yeah, you shared with me the other week a situation where I did this with an employee uh, present with one of our teammates, and you just said, Dad, you know, I think you were just unaware of the power differential there. You were just kind of talking. You are just talking. But you were just kind of mindless about it and shared an opinion that made her uncomfortable, and you can't do that. Right. She didn't feel like she could come back at what you said, probably. I mean, I'm assuming I didn't talk to her about it, but I'm assuming, you know, she wouldn't have felt comfortable. And uh, and in your mind, you were just kind of like offhandedly saying something. So I think that's really something that's so easy to forget because as leaders, we don't have the perception of ourselves as, you know, kind of that thousand pound idea. But the people who report to us sure do. And we need to, to never lose sight of that. You know, I think where this really gets practical is when we give other people the permission to disagree with our opinion Mm -hmm. and it's okay, it doesn't make them less than, it doesn't make us better than, but it just makes it different. And that's kind of what makes the world go around. I mean, if we all, I remember I heard years ago, somebody say, you know, if, if both of us agree, then one of us is unnecessary. Right. And so there's real value from getting opposing opinions. And I, I can think of, you know, my 40 year marriage to your mother, um, we often disagree. We are like the total opposite on every personality test. Uh, she loves to challenge just for the sake of challenging. And I'm better for it. You know, I'm glad that we don't always agree. I'm glad that I have her perspective because it's so different than my perspective. Same is true in your company. Same is true in your nation. You know, I think uh, the fabric of our nation as a country, if we had everybody that believed by me, 
God help us. This is really important, kind of back to the leadership idea here. There just may be some conversations that you're not going to have with people at different levels of your org chart because the power differential is too great for it to be a fair setup for that conversation. And you may need to reserve certain conversations, for example, like politics, for conversations where you're truly with your peers, where there's enough equity in the relationship um, that you can have disagreement. Because as much as you try as a leader, it just may never be safe enough for people to disagree on certain topics. And so part of having a civil conversation is realizing that those conversations happen best in certain places. I'm not sure I agree with that. Really? Tell me. Yeah. Well, well first of all, I, I totally get that I can't go willy-nilly expressing my opinion because of that power differential. But I think I'm just kind of naturally curious. And I like to ask people questions about why they believe what they believe or what their point of view is. I feel like that informs my own understanding and my own learning. So do you think that would be unsafe? No, I think that's fine, provided there is equity. And I don't mean... Um, positional equity, but I mean, you know, you have trust built up in the relationship. I think that can be fine if there is that, but that's not the same thing as putting your opinion out there with great force. Mm -hmm. I think asking questions with curiosity is always a good idea if there's enough trust in the relationship Mm -hmm. where people feel like they can be honest. I think, you know, stating a super strong political opinion in, in the context where people, because of a power differential, don't feel like they can push back is probably not a great idea. Yeah, well, let me put it this way. I, I think as leaders, one of the skills that we need to learn, I don't know if it's a skill, but it's something we need to do is create an environment that's safe for dissent. Mm-hmm. And that's on us. you know. And people are going to read how we respond. They're probably going to read our body language. You know, If they start expressing something that's different than what I believe, if I start crossing my arms you know, or looking like I'm tense or started frowning or whatever, that's going to shut that down. And that's also going to shut down stuff I need to hear. Some of the best thinking, some of the best counsel you'll ever get are from people you disagree with. And if you don't make space for that, your organization's not going to grow. You're not going to grow. You're just going to stay the same. You're going to be static. And God forbid that we would attract people to our organization that all think like we do. We've seen the downfall of that even in our own organization. And we're much better today by attracting a much more diverse group of people than we had at the beginning. I totally agree. So I think we actually do agree on your point there. Um, the only thing I would say, in addition to to creating you know space for people to feel like they can disagree, if we're just talking about politics, I think that's kind of a different thing. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, you know, I think that's sort of its own special category. Today, we've learned that you really can have a civil conversation on a tough subject if you start where you agree, keep an open mind, get your facts straight, and state your own view with humility. As we wrap it up for today, I want to remind you that leadership is more about influence than power. When other people trust you, they'll be more willing to listen to what you have to say. Dad, do you have any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I'm challenged by this content, you know, because I don't have 100% right And I want to get better at this myself. And I realize that there's a lot at stake. I want to be a model of how this can be done. And I think what we need is more people who are committed to civil discourse, more people who are willing to engage with people they disagree with, but to do it in a civil way uh, that's productive and is positive. And if we don't do that, you know, I fear for our nation, I fear for the world. We've got to get this right. And it starts with us. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes, including a full transcript online at leadto.win. Thanks again for joining us on Lead to Win. 
Also, please tell your friends and colleagues about it and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. We invite you to join us next week when we'll show you how to break through the achievement barrier you may not even be aware of. It's called the upper limit problem. Until then, lead to win. Well, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like, like how Abe Lincoln would say it. I hope you think he'd be like, well. Well, Nick, there you go again. <laughs> <laughs>